0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, with a message entitled, The Heart of a Christian Leader. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I think there's a form of leadership that's uniquely Christian. Look, I'm not saying that just because you are a Christian, you're going to lead this way. I mean, Christian leadership has to be learned. We need to learn to make Jesus our example. We need to learn to lead as he did. Look, I know, I know. There are a number of different styles of leadership, and to be truthful, I'm not speaking about a style of leadership. I mean, some leadership is more consultative, and some is more transactional, some is strategic, and I get that. Different situations demand a different style of leadership, but it's not style of leadership that I'm talking about. I'm really speaking about something else. Jesus washing his disciples' feet, now that's not a style of leadership. In fact, it's not a style at all. After all, when Jesus said, and it's recorded in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, he's not speaking about style but about a life that loves in a way that very few can love. Some time ago, I heard about an Italian priest throughout the time of the coronavirus, and he was in his 70s and was on a ventilator. Now, ventilators were in short supply in Italy during the height of the pandemic, and so he willingly gave up his ventilator for another, and in turn, he died. Is that a leadership style? Well, no, that's a love that flows from Calvary. It's the kind of leadership that says, I'd gladly give my life for the ones I love so that others might live. After Paul had been kicked out of Thessalonica, the newly formed church would have heard a wide variety of scandalous rumors about Paul. He was upsetting the order of the Roman Empire. The only thing that motivates him was said is greed. He's in this for the money. He's he's trying to make a name for himself at the cost of his followers. And Satan inspired all these rumors He is, after all, the father of all lies. But for the new Christians in Thessalonica, no doubt these rumors must have been confusing and very disorienting. But Satan knew that if he could disconnect the new believers in Thessalonica from Paul, soon after that, he would be able to sow false teaching among them, and in no time at all, he would render them absolutely ineffective. The strange thing about evil rumors is that they seem to work even against the evidence. I've seen people accused of things for which there is no evidence, and yet, I've also heard foolish people say, well, you know, where there's smoke, there's got to be fire. And so, as Paul writes the Thessalonians, he wants to remind them of what they actually saw when they saw him. I mean, what kind of a man and what kind of a leader, what kind of a missionary was he? Now, what we have in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 12 is less a defense of Paul's ministry, but more a reminder of what they saw. And furthermore, there's no sense that the people in Thessalonica believed any of these slanderous rumors. And so, in our passage, Paul is simply reminding the Thessalonians of what they saw in him. What kind of a man had he been? So, let's read our text. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-12. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So if you think about what you've just read, you'll notice that in defining the kind of man that he's been, Paul uses three images. The first is the young mother nursing her children. The second is of a blue-collar worker working long hours. And the third is the image of a father with his children. Again, as I've said before, it's not a leadership style. It's the kind of person who leads as Christ did. So let's start with the first image. Look again at verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The translation in our Bible is actually a very good one. It's been pointed out that the same noun, trophos, nursing mother, is sometimes also used of a wet nurse. But clearly, Paul has in mind a mother, a mother with a newborn child. Well, what do we know about nursing moms? Well, Paul says we know they're gentle. I suppose the opposite would be the word formidable or even intimidating. I do know this. As I watched my wife when she nursed our three children, she knew those children very well. She very quickly understood their personalities, and so she effortlessly formed a very secure bond with them. And in essence, that's what Paul is getting at. We were very easy to be with. We spent time with you. We were easy to talk to and easy to approach. It was easy to open up our lives to you because you took such a deep interest in us. And that's what Paul gets at as we go to the next verse. That's verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves because you had become very dear to us. So please notice when he reminds them of how affectionately desirous he was of them, that word affectionately desirous, well, it occurs only here in the entire New Testament. You know, there's an inscription in an ancient sepulcher in which it was said of the parents of the young boy who had been buried, that they were affectionately or greatly desirous of their son. It's the same word. It was never a job for Paul. The relationship that so quickly began was one of warmth and of great love for them. And that's why Paul says he didn't just share the gospel. We shared our lives. We became one family when you came to Christ. And how could you ever simply be our project? See, that's a relationship of deep love. And it was true that in Thessalonica, Those who were slandering Paul had made him out to be a man who was just using people to further his own agenda. But but when the Thessalonians remembered the kind of man that they encountered, well, he was a man who loved them and they loved him. Now, let's go to the second illustration Paul uses, and it's that of a blue-collar worker. Look at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul worked hard, and you might wonder how working hard is a defense of his ministry before the critics. You know, a lot of people work hard. Company executives often put in 16-hour days as well. So do a lot of small business people. And in Paul's day, the typical artisan had to work a full day. And that meant from sunrise to sunset just to earn enough for the necessities of life. So working hard hardly seems something that only Paul can claim. And furthermore, I would say... There are criminals who work hard, and there are people who only care to become rich who work hard. I mean, working hard, although I guess it's a good thing, it's not necessarily a virtuous thing. But let's get the context of what Paul is saying. In 1 Corinthians 9, 3 to 7, and then verse 14, Paul explains himself on this matter of his workload. He says, this is my defense of those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. You know, so clearly, when Paul says he worked hard, he means that in order to do ministry in Thessalonica, he had to work from sunup to sundown on his tent-making business, and then at the end of a very hard day, he took care of his own living expenses, and then he went on to do the ministry of caring for the new converts as a mother cared for her children. Uh, Does that surprise you? See, most of Paul's day was spent in his business, to earn enough to make it. And he used the rest of his waking hours building up a church with no hope whatever that he would finally get to the time when the new church would take care of his financial needs. So you have to imagine his level of exhaustion. So when there was a rumor circulating around the city that, look, Paul's only in this for himself, or that he's just trying to get rich from you guys, well, all the believers in the church of Thessalonica knew that that simply wasn't true. They had seen Paul's way of life. Like Jesus, who laid down his own life for his church, Paul had done the same. He, too, was laying down his life for Christ's church. And that's the the central plank of Christian leadership. Christian leadership sacrifices for the sake of others, and we call that love. It's the love that lays down one's life for the good of the other. You know, and in Paul's case, it was not just one glorious moment on the battlefield. No, no, he followed Jesus, who daily laid down his life. It's not a style of leadership. It's called love.
0: Companions can be defined as people who band together for a common cause. Their combined resources accomplish together what they couldn't on their own. back to the bible canada is committed to the clear reliable teaching of god's word but we understand this great calling is not a solo effort that's why this month back to the bible canada is introducing its new monthly partnership program called companions for the gospel companions for the gospel consists of individuals across canada who choose to pray and support ongoing bible teaching in the form of a consistent monthly gift the result lives transformed. To find out more about joining Companions of the Gospel Monthly Partnership, its impact, and the exclusive benefits it offers, or to offer a gift today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Paul had a right to earn his living from the gospel, but instead of doing it, he worked as an artisan or a tent maker, probably at very low wages and very long hours. At the end of a long day's work, he would give himself to building this church. So why did Paul refuse wages in Thessalonica? Well, it seems relatively clear that the new believers never demanded that of him. The answer seems to be that Paul was keenly aware that the city of Thessalonica was explosive. And you might remember that Paul began his ministry there in the local synagogue. And for three successive Sabbaths, he reasoned with the people there that Jesus was the Messiah and that the Scripture had already prophesied that the Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And given the reaction that he faced in that place, Paul must have gotten the pulse of the city. It was filled with people who were looking for a way to discredit him. I think, and I can't prove this from the Scripture, but I think, Whereas there might have been a few of the new converts who who might have had means of supporting Paul, he had simply refused it. He was aware how the rumors and the slander and the wagging tongues and the outright lies would work to discredit him. And so he made the decision to take one bit of slander right out of their hands. And he did it because of his commitment to the gospel. And then, once he had won some to Christ, he did it out of love for the new church. You know, the principle is simply this. There are times when effective leaders will simply do whatever it takes to help people come to know Christ and become his disciples. It was Carl Menninger, he's a well-known psychiatrist. He was reported to having said in answering, you know, a question about advice for a person suffering depression. Menninger said, lock up your house, go across the street, find someone in need and do something to help that person. You know, but quite frankly, We don't really need a psychologist to tell us that, do we? Jesus taught us that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. You know, some time ago, I was sitting in a restaurant with three Christian businessmen. Two of them were locked up in a legal dispute over a business contract. I'm gonna call them Bob and Bill. Bob claimed that Bill was trying to rip him off by overcharging him for his service. And Bill claimed that Bob had a history of never paying his bills, of getting tradesmen to do a service and then never paying them. And the third man, I'm going to call him Dennis. And again, that's not a real name, but he was there because I asked him to come and and help me find a way to reconcile this dispute between the other two. So we sat there at that table, the four of us, And two of us watched as the other two went round and round on the issues, with both Bob and Bill unwilling to budge and both threatening to take the other to court. And finally, Dennis reached into his pocket, pulled out his checkbook, and made out a sizable check to the one of them to cover the entire bill the other said was owed. And Bob simply grabbed the check, stuffed it into his pocket, never said thank you or said he was embarrassed. He was glad to get the money and he just walked out and Bill followed and both were gone. With that, I left with Dennis. And on the way home, I asked him why he did it, why he had paid the debt that had nothing to do with him. And he said, John, I've seen how often the reputation of Christ and his church is harmed by men like these two men. And my check was a small price to pay so that those who slander the cause of Christ won't find a reason to do so here. Well, I was thinking about that on our drive home, and finally it came to me. I said, Dennis, let me help you pay for the reputation of the gospel. And he said, John, don't you take away my joy. I realized then what a joy it had been for him. See, I ask you again, have you ever made a sacrifice for the gospel? And effective Christian leaders aren't about claiming their rights. They're about the good of the gospel. Do you think the world doesn't notice those things? It's called authenticity. Paul sitting hour after hour making tents was God's way of letting the community know that his message came directly from God. And we've already seen that Paul, when describing his ministry, has used two images. The first was that of a nursing mother, and the second was that of a blue-collar laborer who with whatever time he had left, gave himself for the gospel. And by the way, for all of you who do the same, who work a long day, go to your local church in the evening to do ministry, you're following the pathway taken both by Paul and, of course, ultimately by Jesus himself. You know, I find Paul's illustrations to be interesting. You remember again, he compares himself first to a nursing mother with her baby, then a blue-collar worker, and then finally to a father, in verse 11, encouraging his children. Now, let me tell you about those images. Parents, if they're good parents, sacrifice for their kids. I know that some of you come out of homes where you never saw that, and I was fortunate. My mom and dad would have laid down their lives for us, and we kids knew it. You know, I believe that effective Christian leaders can recreate the atmosphere of a healthy family in the context of a local church. And we remember, we call that a woman who nurses, and the the word children simply means infants. So the original says, as a nursing mother caring for an infant. And I have an image of a mother holding her baby to her breast and singing softly into its ear. Do you think the mother throws the child away when it starts screaming and dirtying its diapers and throwing up? And of course not. She seeks to comfort the child and let the child know that no matter what, this child will always be safe in her loving arms. And Paul says, that's my ministry. So now let's look at the image of the father. In the ancient Greek world, the father was given the charge of educating, disciplining, and arranging for the career training of his children. And Paul says, that was my role as well. I not only nurtured you to life, I encouraged and comforted and urged you to live lives worthy of God. I wanted what was best for you and made sure that you were properly trained to be what Christ wants you to be. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 tells us that love seeks not its own. Love is committed to the other. So let's review now verses 10 to 12. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. You know, it's the primary goal of all Christian leadership that you, the leader, must ensure that your people live lives worthy of God, that they're growing in their faith, that they're resisting the temptations that, that wage war against their souls, and you're persevering and are sharing their faith with others. See, to live worthy of God is to assume that God is the focal point of living. It means that we together live in a manner consistent with the commands and character of God. You remember that Paul has been giving himself as an example. Immoral, deceitful, manipulative, and self-serving people are not living lives worthy of God. But on the other hand, morally pure people, people who are straightforward and honest and who live their lives serving others, are worthy of God. See, effective leaders understand this. Leaders in every church know of the people in their church who live their lives in families, They go to work or to university or to school, to sporting events, to clubs, to parties, and any other place, and they know that they want to train them to live worthy of God in all of those environments. That's why Paul uses three key words, words that a father would use. The first is the word exhort. We exhorted you, he said. The word means to speak to someone in such a way that causes them either to be encouraged or to be comforted. See, in that context, it means to speak to them so they won't stop believing in the promises of God and of the commands of God. The second word is to be encouraged. It's it's a synonym for exhorting. It's as if Paul can't stress this part enough. Believers need constant encouragement to live lives worthy of the gospel. And the third word, well, that's the word to charge. We charged you, he said, to walk worthy of God. That is, we commanded it. We weren't afraid, even though we loved you dearly, to demand this of you. It is a marker of all Christian lives, and that is the picture of the soul of a leader who leads not according to a certain style, although that's not wrong, but who leads out of the spirit of Jesus himself. Those who are led in that fashion are being led by a follower of Jesus, And it's for that reason, we shouldn't all line up to be leaders in Christ's vineyard. We shouldn't all be leaders, but Christ never calls us to do anything he hasn't done. Remember, he was the one that led by washing the feet of the saints. He was the one that led by dying on a cross for the brothers and sisters. And so every single leader is called upon to follow his example, to love as he did, and therefore to recreate an environment of love in the local setting. John,
0: I've grown up in a time when servant leadership has been the model, not only within the church, but in a lot of corporate environments as well. But what I hear you saying is pretty revealing. Christian leadership is not a style. It's, it's not rooted in a series of do's and don'ts. It starts with a change of the heart.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think we have to continue, even as we stress servant leadership, we, we must stress the leadership side of that, because I know in some circles, servant leadership is just a way of saying we don't want any leadership. And clearly, that's not how the early church functioned, and that's not, you know, how God wants us to function. He calls for people to lead, so let's commit to that. But, you know, I've been trying to make the point that, you know, God does watch our own heart, and that is no matter what style we use to lead, which is often related to our own gift mix, the style of our leadership has to be along the line that says, I am giving myself for the good of those who I'm leading. I have their best interests, not mine at heart. I am prepared to lay down my life for others. It's the model of leadership that Christ has entrusted to me, and I'm learning from him to be a leader like that. So there's a number of styles that can work, but that's the heart of servant leadership.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. If you're considering a vacation in 2024, we'd love to invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and the leadership team behind them on a Caribbean cruise event from April 5th to the 14th, 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. This vacation opportunity will provide beautiful scenery, time being refreshed and challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with Laugh-Again's Phil Callaway, and times of worship and song with feature musical guest Amanda Stott. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. For more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by those who participate.